Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking me the questions that you submit is none other than producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you doing out there on the picket line? Uh, you know, we had a, a big morale boost last week, Mick. Uh, right. Hollywood is shut down. <laughs> yep. The Screen Actors Guild went out. By the way, if you're in town and if you're going to Midsummer Scream in Long Beach on the 29th, we will be recording a live postmortem with actor and writer guests to be announced. But uh, we would love you to join us down there in Long Beach on the 29th at 2.15. Yes, come say hi. Uh, and we'll be talking to them about the strike, about the the first ever in 63 years uh yep. dual sag aftra and writers guild of america strikes um, yeah and i'm sorry to say that my third guild the directors guild of america did not go out on strike but we are still very supportive of one another yes uh that was it was it was i'm certain there are some members who are not super happy with the DGA negotiating committee at the moment, but uh, I would you know. claim myself among them, but uh, we'll move <laughs> on, yeah. you know, but you got a whole two weeks of work out of that new contract, you know, so <laughs> some um, of us did, yeah. some, yeah, some of them did. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, 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 it's kind of wild. I mean, we're, we're living in uh, unprecedented times. Um, you know, it's a time of evolution, if not revolution. Absolutely. Uh, it was a, a very wild and emotional week leading up to SAG going on strike. And uh, but they did. And I will say that uh, there has been a lot of renewed energy on the picket lines uh, wow. around town, especially uh, since we're facing a giant mid-July summer heat wave. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's been, it's been hot. Uh, yep. Emotions are high and there's a lot at stake here, but uh, yes. we'll continue to go into that as uh, the show moves along. Yes, but, uh, actually uh, we've got uh, our first question uh, in our, our ask Mick anything mailbag uh, <laughs> is about the writer's strike. So why don't we just jump into it? Let's do it. All right. Brandon writes, Dear Mick and Producer Joe, I have a question in regard to the writer's strike. Uh, with being a non-union writer and filmmaker, I have hopes to join in the future and not taking on any gigs to stand in solidarity. What is the guide on writing my own screenplays? Should I not be writing at all or is banking my own material with the hopes to get them in studio hands sometime down the line looked down upon? I cannot speak for the Writers Guild, um, but as you are not a member of the Guild and you are still working your way into the industry, I think writing on spec as a non-Guild member is something that no one would look down upon you for doing. Um, maybe Producer Joe would, but... Uh, uh, no, 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 no. No, as a, as a non-member, yeah. I think it's entirely within your rights to exercise 
your writing muscles and write on spec. Yeah, no, I, we're, we as members are also encouraged to write for ourselves and to write on spec uh, during this time. So, so there's absolutely no reason that non-union writers couldn't do the same. Uh, yeah, the, I wish the, you well. The, the, the problem being like what happened on Masters of Horror and when it turned into fear itself, we had the first drafts for 13 episodes written by Guild writers. And then the strike happened in 2007 on Halloween day. And after that, the producers hired non-union writers, mostly Canadian writers to come in and write instead of union writers. That's called scabbing. And I could not in good conscience remain a part of that. The producer said, well, you don't have to write. You can just give your notes as a producer. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I can't. I'm a writer. That's my main job on this show. And, you know, if you expect to write in place of guild writers uh, during a strike, like I said, it's called being a scab. I would certainly yeah. never hire a writer who did that under those conditions. Right. And I would think that uh, anybody should think twice before doing that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, basically where the, the, the no-nos are, uh, you know, don't let yourself be hired by a company that is a signatory of the AMPTP, which is the, the organization that we're on strike against currently. Uh, and don't sell anything to that company. Um, yeah. There, there is some gray areas. Uh, you know, if it is truly an independently financed movie, um, you could in theory uh, sell your screenplay to to that financier, um, but they can't sell the finished product of that movie or let the project be acquired by an AMPTP company during right. the strike. Right. Uh, a lot of the last time in 2007, 2008, there were a handful of companies who said, we will abide by the agreement when it is made, no matter what it is. Right. And some writers were able to do above board work for signatory right. companies, but the major studios are an alliance of motion yes. picture and television producers. And right. they are on the same team facing off against the creatives. But, you know, when in doubt, don't let yourself be hired and don't sell something during this time uh, is a good rule of thumb. And, and uh, check with but, the guild. Yeah. yeah, or chat with the guild and ask. But absolutely, 100%, you can write for yourself right now. Uh, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing in hopes that someday this ends and we can try to sell that material then. And boy, um, when it ends, is it going to be tough to sell material because everybody is going to be flogging scores. There is going to be a glut of content. Uh, so yeah, so not only um, do you have to wait through the strike, you'll probably have to wait for that initial... Uh, wave to die down to the deluge so, yeah yes yes uh so but that's that's the the short and the skinny we have another um uh kind of interesting writer question that came in from john twitch marrows uh who writes i'm a big stephen king fan this is the right podcast for that uh <laughs> and have a personal affinity for his 2019 novel the institute um, I would love to adapt it into a screenplay on spec, of course, and was curious how adaptation rights work. 
is it safe to assume that if I don't submit it anywhere, I'm safe from copyright infringement? Well, you can do whatever you want to exercise your, your screenwriting muscles and to try and build your skills and do all of that. But you can't take it out anywhere. You can't give it any to anybody to be seen. People pay Stephen King and his uh, representatives. They make deals for minimum a million dollars and right. usually more normally several million dollars to acquire rights to his books. So um, practice away. Uh, I think even King himself would encourage you to go ahead and do it, but you can't show it to anybody. I mean, uh, it even as a writing sample, I'd be cautious of that because uh, it can, could bite me. You can use it as a writing sample, but you, you can't can, but it, it yeah. might create a, an uncomfortable situation. Sure. The, the, the only the only other I think avenue would be if you did find someone who loved it, uh, have them approach King's reps and try to make a deal for it. I think that would yeah. be the pie in the sky best case scenario for yeah, it. Yeah, which would be great. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you wanted to just, uh, you know, write it to to flex the muscles. Um, and and show someone that you can write in that voice. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of people who write uh, television episodes, and yeah, 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 exactly. Spec episodes of things or, or spec, uh, you know, biopics that they don't have the life rights to people. Yeah, um, you know, or they're or, good writing samples under the right conditions. Yeah, um, exactly. And I certainly understand why you'd want to adapt the Institute. It's a terrific book. So, uh, yeah, you know, just uh, keep your expectations in line and, uh, you know, don't don't pedal like you actually have the rights, I think, yeah. is the, the best way to, you know, safety move first. Forward. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, staying in the Stephen King lane for a second. Gee, why we, would we do that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Lars writes, hi, Mick, could you tell us how. NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got cast as Monster Shouter in The Stand. Hi, Lars. Um, basically, those who know me know that I'm not very sports-oriented. What? <laughs> I do know and did know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was, and I knew he was a basketball player, but I knew him mostly from his social and political activism. Right. Um, and, but he was a friend of the producer, Richard Rubenstein, the executive producer. Uh, and so they talked about it. It was Rubenstein's idea. And he brought him in to do it. And I thought he was great. I thought he was terrific. But, um, you know, as a sports figure, my line producer, Peter McIntosh, was just out of his mind with excitement about it because he's a big, big sports fan, especially basketball. And uh, so, but it all came through Richard Rubenstein and I had nothing to do with the casting of that part other than approving with enthusiasm. Uh, and then working with him was an interesting experience as well. But uh, he, what, he was- what, uh, what, what, what made that interesting? Well, because he's a sports celebrity bigger than most people are on screen. Sure. You know, he, he had a fame and a following wherever he was people would see him and, and freak out. And we, we shot with him in New York, actually. Right. Um, so, uh, but uh, he was very removed, you know, when he wasn't doing the performance, he was not hanging out and was very quiet. And there wasn't a lot of communication between us uh, other than just 
just the facts, ma'am. Yeah. And, uh, but he didn't need much direction. He knew what we were going for. And it was very clear um, that we both were on the same page as to what the monster shouter was all about. He uh, he's very tall. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. You, you know, I found that some... out about all, all basketball players. Seem to tend to <laughs> I've, yeah, I've, I've seen him. I've seen him at a party and, and even in his uh, advancing age, he's still very tall. Um, yeah. What I, is he seven foot two or something? Oh my God. Know. I don't know. It's r- ridiculous. He was, yeah. he's, he's huge, but, but. Uh, well, I used to feel tall and then I'd stand next to him and it's. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how was framing him against other people? Was that well, a challenge? It was easier than it would have been today because this was in the days of a four by three aspect ratio. Right. So yeah. It was almost as tall a frame as it was wide. Yes. So it was a little bit easier, especially in master sh- shots to, to frame him. But yeah, there were scenes where he's with a little boy and yeah. uh, framing that, you know, you, you, if you're doing over the shoulders, you're looking down on the kid and you're looking up on Kareem. So, but it up, also up his, up his nose, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. But that, also those camera angles looking up on a character increases their power visually yeah. and looking down on a character diminishes. So yeah. it was really useful in a dramatic sense as well. Uh, the way we would frame him with other characters. I love that. Um, all right. Uh, speaking of things we love, Matt writes, I'm a huge fan of both horror and its dark sister, film noir. Uh, I know you're both huge fans of noir as well. So I'm curious as to which film noirs are your absolute favorites. Okay. That's, it's a good question because they are stepchildren of one another. Um, Yeah. I am a huge noir fan and have been and for reading as well. James M. Cain and Raymond Chandler and James Elroy and all these people I've, I've read pretty much. Well, nobody's read everything James M. Cain has written because they're just in the multiples of dozens. Um, but I did, I did glance at this question and I jotted down a few of my favorites in no particular order, Ooh. but the ones that really immediately came to mind uh, from this question. Okay. First of all, Chinatown. You think of noir as being in the 40s, but this was in the 70s. And it was a tribute to the movies of the 40s, but with a very modern take that included sex and violence and and strange relationships, uh, parental and father-daughter relationships that are yes, uh, yes. <laughs> that might fit in with the motherfucker trilogy of sleepwalkers and so forth. <laughs> also uh, very modern feeling with water crises. Uh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the water crises were addressed in a big way in Los Angeles. So that was, uh, I think, uh, certainly... Polanski's, well, one of his masterpieces, along with Rosemary's Baby, and you know, uh, it just it's it's a great great film that doesn't stand as a tribute to noir, but as an example of great film noir. Yes. And then Billy Wilder did two of the best, uh, amazing Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard. Double Indemnity two, was going to be one of my answers. Oh yeah, two two masterpieces within the genre, just great, and they hold up today. A lot of movies from the '40s and '50s are creaky and dusty, and and move slowly for a modern audience. So it's often hard to get a young film centric audience engaged in film noir because it can seem so slow moving by comparison with today's standards. But 
all of these movies are movies that have an energy that is modern and compelling. Yeah, uh, and Billy Wilder, movie. yeah, Especially. Billy Wilder is a great writer, great director. Uh, that he he co-wrote his movies, but he was the primary voice. Orson Welles did Touch of Evil, which I just saw recently, which is also another masterpiece that has an opening shot that uh, is uncut yes. for several minutes that just moves Wait, off. You'd never seen Touch of Evil? Before? Oh, no, I've seen it many times. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just watched it again recently. Nice. And, and it's so powerful. Oh, and yes. Welles has no no problem depicting himself in as unflattering and vile a way as possible <laughs> as a very unseemly character. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking another, of Orson Welles, I was yeah. going to say one of my favorites is The Third Man. Oh, uh, great. Great. And that what, score. Yeah. Oh, wonderful score. Um, great movie. Um, next one on my list is The Sweet Smell of Success with Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, directed by Alexander McKendrick. I saw that for the first time decades ago at the Bing Theater, uh, not the Bing Theater, but yeah, the uh, the L.A. County Art Museum Theater. And cool. Alexander McKendrick, well, Burt Lancaster was there to do a Q&A and he didn't know it, but McKendrick was in the back row. And he started blasting Alexander, Alexander McKendrick saying, you know, he didn't really direct it and, and was kind of bad mouthing him at this screening. Oh, no. And then McKendrick kind of waved from the back row and there he was. So that was one of my favorite screening experiences <laughs> I've ever had. In um, oh, boy. I, it's a longer list than I was going to get into, but um, there's another movie called Gun Crazy. Extremely low budget movie that has so much wild and crazy energy. And there's a scene that is one shot that goes in and out of a car. It travels, it gets out of the car in another location and it's unbroken and it's beautiful. But Joseph H. Lewis was the director and I'm not a big New Year's Eve guy. One of my favorite New Year's Eves was years ago, uh, there was a, a revival house in Sherman Oaks called the Sherman Theater. And it ran two Joseph H. Lewis movies, including Gun Crazy. And it's to this day, one of my favorite New Year's Eve experiences going by myself to oh, see two Joseph H. Lewis movies. That's awesome. And also I, in the low budget, I got two more. Oh, you got two more. Okay. All right. <laughs> so also in the low budget arena is the brilliant Detour. Detour by Edward G. Homer is another Poverty Row masterpiece, just so much crackling energy and, and just the cast is brilliant. And then for a studio example from the era, I think it was 1945, 47, Mildred Pierce by Michael Curtiz, who did Casablanca, the director. Uh, it, the title would not lead you to believe that it's a film noir, but it's based on a James M. Cain novel and it stars Joan Crawford and it really goes into it deep. And so th those are just, I don't know, what, eight, I guess, of the things. Yeah, that'll, that that'll, that'll give you plenty to watch. I, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I, Double Indemnity and The Third Man were, were my two picks. I had a third, but the more you've been talking, the more I'm wondering, I'm curious if you think it counts as a film noir or if it's still, or if it's too much of a spy movie. But um, I was thinking of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. Um, Notorious is definitely a spy movie, but. I think it qualifies, you know, there's I, I feel like, like it does. It's you know, the shadow of a doubt qualifies. Yeah. 
yeah um anyway so I, I i think that's a wonderful movie and and uh just recently on trailers from hell i saw john landis was talking about it and just reminded oh, yeah. me of what a what a truly wonderful movie uh it it was when i was in my snootier uh film school f- phase i would i would go around and say that was my favorite hitchcock uh <laughs> ah, yeah just so you'd stand apart from the crowd right yes <laughs> it ain't vertigo uh, i think yeah. with time i've i've come to just fully embrace north by northwest but but that's um, pretty wonderful too yeah not a film noir but a wonderful movie yeah um so all right speaking of favorite movies uh rob writes hello from england joe and mick i absolutely love the podcast and i listen to it every day which is well you're gonna run out of them soon (laughs) that's right (laughs) my question is are you a fan of the films of sam peckinpah and if so what are some of your favorites of his films well i i do like peckinpah's work um, not all of it. Uh, and I'm not a huge Westerns fan, but Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia was pretty spectacular. But my very favorite is a very controversial movie that remains controversial to this day and was remade, but not nearly as hard hitting. It's my pick too, Mick. Straw Dogs. The yep. acting, Dustin Hoffman is so good in this. And uh, uh, I mean, it's just a really, really powerful film. And it's about rape and responsibility and revenge. And, you know, this is from the 1970s, but it is unflinching. Uh, It's incendiary. And it was then and it still remains that it may be even more incendiary now than it was. Oh, my gosh. I I, I can't even imagine. uh, I mean, I I guess I should rewatch it, but like post me too, thinking about all the where we are, you know, currently climate climate wise in terms of sexual politics and such. Uh, I bet it's an even harder movie to watch today than it was then. It um, is indeed. It's very powerful. And and just coincidentally, I rewatched it sometime this year as well. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, there's something very primal about watching a man get pushed to his limits. Uh, yes. that's, it, that is very emotionally compelling. Yeah. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I would uh, recommend it. I mean, it's certainly a thriller. It, it it borderlines on home invasion horror, I would even argue. It does. It does. But it's interesting because it's in the uh, English uh, hinterlands and it is it, it's not played. It's not an American. Truly a, a terrifying uh, thriller. Um, yeah. And if if our fans have not seen it, I would I would seek it out. And it remains controversial and with good reason. Yes. Uh, Almost as controversial, Sam writes, I'm a huge fan of Masters of Horror. So many great horror directors participated in the series. However, two of my favorite horror directors were conspicuously absent, George Romero and Sam Raimi. I'm just curious if there was ever an attempt to involve them in the production, and if so, why they did not participate. Well, the answer is yes. Uh, And in fact, we came really close to Romero doing one. Uh, I had written an episode based on an original idea by Clive Barker called Heckle's Tale. And it ended up being directed by John McNaughton, who had done Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Well, originally, because it is zombie centric, it was going to be George. 
But George's schedule and ours never really worked out. We kept trying to make it work. He was doing Land of the Dead. There was a time where he was going to be doing a movie and then right when it was too late for us to schedule him in, the green light turned red and it fell apart. So he is listed on Heckle's Tale as George Romero presents that episode. As oh, far as Sam Raimi goes, um, Sam does what Sam does when he does it. He's wonderful, a brilliant guy, but always working. And he doesn't really work for anybody. He'll do an assignment for a studio, but makes it very much his own movie. Right. And I think the idea of him directing, first of all, the time issue was never right. And the most difficult thing about Masters of Horror was once the train starts on the season, every two weeks, we start a new show. Every right. Monday, a new director starts a new episode. And each yep. of those slots has to be filled. Yes. And if somebody falls out, maybe we can get somebody last minute, but you have to plan on a date. And that was something that we just were never able to do. You know, Roger Corman almost, almost directed one as well. That's right. And we came That's right. very close to that. In fact, Heckle's Tale was the same one. I, I, the, um, that was the, the trouble we always had when we were trying to sell Nightmare Cinema as a series yeah. was, they looked at the, the list of directors we had who had said yes initially and said like, wow, but you know, how, how many of these are people are actually going to be available by the time we're ready to shoot. Uh, and that, and that's, that was luckily something you were able to, you know, bridge when you did masters. It was not uh, when we pitched nightmare as a series, but that's, that's ultimately why we did it as a movie. Um, right. And, so. you know, once night once masters of horror got going people came to us wanting to be a part of it because they saw that it was real it was we're giving great directors complete creative control and so people wanted to experience that because you rarely get that and that would have been the situation had we got nightmare cinema off the ground as a series but who knows what the Alas, future it's just yeah. a uh a, a rotten tomato certified fresh uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. Michael asks, there are a few episodes of amazing stories with horror elements. The credits say you're a story editor and sometimes writer, but who influenced the horror bits, you or Spielberg? Well, you know, it was Spielberg's show. Right. But I was really the only person who worked on the show that loved the horror genre as much as Stephen did. And sure. Stephen, Oh, well, Joe, Joe Dante loves horror. Right. Okay. Yeah. Joe and, sure. and, you know, there certainly Toby was a handful, did, but, yeah. but they were hired to direct episodes right. that were already written. In terms of the writing staff, you mean? Right. Right. The writing staff. I mean, there was Josh and John who were the executive producers and showrunners. And then I was the story editor, which meant that I would write episodes, but I would also do the rewrites after the freelancers would write their draft and set of revisions that they were contracted for. And so they didn't have to pay them again to write additionally. I was on staff to do that as the story editor. But, you know, The Amazing Fallsworth was an idea of Stevens that was a horror story that I wrote the script for. Um, Mirror Mirror was an episode that was written for Martin Scorsese originally by Joe Minion. And 
it was not really a shootable script for our schedule and for the format of the show. And I did a page one uncredited rewrite. Most of the horror stuff you see in the show, um, I had a hand in in one way or another. But Stephen is a huge horror fan and once told me, and I think I've said this on the show before. Um, it bears repeating. Yeah, he said to me, you should hear some of the ideas I've had that make David Cronenberg seem like Walt Disney, but I can't do them because of who I am and how I'm perceived right. to be. And I thought to myself, and I know I've said this before to you, is Stephen, that's exactly why you can do those things. Because yeah, of who you yeah, are. yeah. But there were I, expectations of him that would have really not, not been uh, the best situation for him to do. I get it. I mean, look, one of one of the great uh, failures of 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 Quibi was that we did not get the Steven Spielberg horror anthology that he was supposed to do for the platform. Uh, which you know, maybe we would have seen some of those ideas come to pass finally. I would um, love to have seen that, but you know, Jaws and Poltergeist are two of the best horror movies ever. They sure are, and he only directed one of them. Uh, <laughs> yep, but was very involved and wrote the shooting draft for the other. Yep, yep. Anyway, just just clarifying for, yep. for all those that still need it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk about something else uh, that that you wrote uh, uh, that just had a big birthday. A birthday? <laughs> By golly. Uh, yes. Happy 30th anniversary to your Halloween classic, which was released in the middle of summer. Focus yes. Focus. <laughs> yep. Yeah, 30th anniversary. Uh, it, it was very weird. <laughs> weird marketing choice by yeah. the geniuses at the Disney company. It was, it was so funny. I was, I was thinking about it yesterday on, on the actual anniversary, and I went to go look up the home video release date. Cause I was like, well, surely they had it out by Halloween on home video. Once nope. bitten twice and twice shy. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, J January, 1994. Uh, and why not miss both Christmas and Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's literally, it's, it, it, it became a classic in spite of Disney almost. Yeah. Uh, yep. In spite of, uh, yeah. they, they have seen the fruits of their labors. Well, they've seen the fruits of your labors. I didn't uh, want to put it that way, but I'm happy you did. <laughs> um, no, I haven't, but that's another story. Well, yes, that's another story for another day. But 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 they're working on it. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, things are looking yes. good. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I guess what I just really wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, how does it feel to have been responsible for something that is such a, a seminal staple of arguably the biggest holiday of the year. Well, it's, it's really strange because I've had successes and I've had failures, Sure, but you only, if you get one of these where you're partly responsible for creating something that has become a perennial favorite, you know, that goes beyond cult classic, but becomes, you know, has a status where everybody's seen it. And most people of a certain age embrace it as a favorite. Um, it, we've talked about this before. It's, it's amazing. It's humbling and it's thrilling 
on Halloween in particular, where I see little six-year-old Sanderson sisters in costume come up and knock on the door and go trick or treat, you know? Yeah. Um, all of those hell, things. Hell, my, my wife dressed up as a Sanderson sister two years ago. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's thrilling, it's humbling, but it's it, it also is is something that I've allowed myself to to be proud of. Um because life is short. Yeah. And how many times do you get to be a part of the zeitgeist? And and you know, the I, original idea was David Kirshner's the producer, brilliant guy, great yeah. artist, um, and a wonderful filmmaker. And he brought me in and, uh, you know, we, we hit it off like crazy. We remain really close friends, uh, mutual admiration society. And we, we did this thing together. He gave me my head, literally not talking about Billy Butcherson's, but uh, to, to just fill it out and, and, and create the, the fabric of, of what was to become the basis for 11 other screenwriters on it after me. Right, uh, right. Before it kind of reverted back to what I'd written eight years before they started shooting it. The so, development process. Uh, <laughs> well, hello, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it's thrilling. And I know we've talked about this movie more than we should just because uh, on this show, just because of my involvement and its popularity. But um, a 30th anniversary for something that was not a success in its initial release in July (laughs) is, is, is something to celebrate and, and to, to be able to allow myself to be proud of. Yeah, no. And and I think you should, I mean, even in the uh, nine years that we've known each other, uh, I've watched you embrace the movie more and more and more over the years have gone by. And I'm really happy that you did because uh, you know, it's a movie that I grew up with and it means a lot to, to me, to my family, to a lot of my friends. Um, and you should be proud of it. Well, it uh, takes and- a village, you know, Kenny Ortega directed the hell out of it, brought so much personality to it. And the cast, the Sanderson sisters and Omri Katz and Vanessa Shaw. And yep. I mean, everybody is fantastically cast. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there are some things that don't quite stand the test of time, but, uh, characters like ice maybe <laughs> i don't know he's, a, he's just a, they he's dated a, a little let's it's put a time it capsule that's yeah. that's what it is <laughs> there there you go i'll take that but everybody involved was the right person at the right time yeah, yeah. and so you know it 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 struck a chord and it created some some magic that created you know a level of cinema history that that i am just humbled and proud to be a part of as you should be um I got in uh, one last little question about it. I got in a little bit of a, a debate with some folks yesterday on on social media about it, uh, <laughs> I saw because it. <laughs> because uh, you know the question was I I made a statement that it is I think now the most popular Halloween movie of all time, uh, which some some uh, Michael Myers bros took offense to, uh, and this is by the way not trying to take away from Halloween at all. It's my favorite horror movie. It's the greatest Halloween movie of all time. But I think because of the audience that Hocus Pocus has been able to reach and the broadness that it can reach uh, and, and the heights that it is, is reached with, um, you know, theme park shows and merchandise and 
it's really, I, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting debate. It'd be interesting to see side by side. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question it has reached a far broader audience yes. than Halloween. That's not to say it's as good a movie as Halloween. No, 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 no. You no, know, no Halloween no, right. is a masterpiece yes. that goes for a very specific audience. It's an audience Absolutely. who wants to be terrified. My sister's not going to watch Halloween, though. Right. Uh. Yes. And <laughs> my, one of my closest friends, when it came out, we went to a screening together with his wife joining along. And she was furious with us and the people who made the movie and everybody, anybody who would like it. <laughs> she was so angry after the screening. So, and yet my friend and I were just gleeful with how much we loved the movie. So, you know, horror movies are very disruptive to yes. a lot of people. But yes. this isn't meant as that. We knew going no. in that Disney was going to be in the title. It's Disney's Hocus Pocus. Yes. Although originally it was titled Disney's Halloween House. Right. Right. Uh, it Hocus Pocus, no offense. It's a catchier title. <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree with you more. They, 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 made, they made the right choice there. And Disney uh, came up with that. A Disney executive came up with that title. Hey, so once in a while, they do something good. Uh, yep. <laughs> it didn't help at the time. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, they got the release date wrong, but they got in the title. July. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty amazing, though, that, um, you know, despite the release date and despite also releasing Nightmare Before Christmas in the same year, uh, that both movies went on to become really staples of the holiday. Uh, it's, yeah. you know, so much so that they've really never had to dip back into gateway horror much since. Uh, <laughs> they just keep- Yeah, well, it's interesting because movies are made for their day. They're made sure. to be released at the time they're made and to make money and to tell the story to a contemporary audience. For any movie, to last 30 years and still be in the front of the public consciousness is an achievement worth celebrating. I agree. Uh, so congratulations. Thank you. Happy 30th to Hocus Pocus. <laughs> uh, I hope some people watched it in the middle of summer. I'm going to wait till Halloween. Uh, <laughs> well, Freeform will probably be showing it every day of October again. So That's right. So, uh, well, congratulations again, Mick. Uh, thank you for another wonderful Ask Mick Anything. And thank uh, you, Producer Joe. And uh, let everybody know how they can get their questions to us. But beforehand, again, any anyone who uh, wants to express their opinions on the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, if you want to rate and review us, it really helps us a lot. And we'd really appreciate it. Yeah. And also come see us on the 29th down in Long Beach at Midsummer Scream. We'd love to... Yes. Uh, to say hi to you um so okay uh you can send your future questions uh to our email ask mick anything at gmail.com uh, or you can find us on the social medias uh mick is at mick garris pm on twitter and instagram and now threads uh if you can figure out how to use it uh, <laughs> i haven't posted anything on threads yet but we're there uh you can find me uh, at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter at Joe Russo Graham on uh, Instagram and threads. Uh, and yeah, send us some of some questions and we'll, we'll ask him next time. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks everybody. Thanks. Mick. Thank you for listening to postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. 
Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.